This is the Shift Podcast. On the Shift Daily Podcast, for you, conversations with Brian Lanier, allyship, how some simple conversations can change our lives. We do have uh, squirrels making out in a tree. Are you into treesomes? It's part of Are You Okay? Plus, we talk about so much more, including Steve Stebbing. What the hell should we watch this weekend? Download the Shift Daily Podcast. Share it with your friends. Like it. That little heart thing. Click it. Because that'd be awesome for us. Thank you very much for listening. Um, our best of is going to be on the radio, on the network, on most of the channels on Saturday night. Some of our best moments from the week uh, as well to share with you, too. The weekend, I think, crushed it at the Super Bowl. Part of it was because he was pissy and he was pissed off and he poured a bunch of his own money into that. I mean, I don't know how many backup dancers there were. I'm going to guess 300. Like there's a lot. And he did it by himself, which is kind of, if you've ever met Abel, it's kind of his thing. Like he, he's, he's a star and he doesn't need, you know, other stars to do it. So that, that kind of was a fit for me. Plus COVID, everything else. One of the reasons that is tossed about that he poured so much into the Super Bowl halftime show was because of Grammy snub. Now that has sparked some conversation that I think might be long overdue, but I don't really get a vote in that because I get to see people on the Grammys that look like me regularly. There's an article that's on the global website that was written by uh, Natalie Harmson. And Natalie is a freelance writer who spoke to sort of this undercurrent of dissatisfied, pissed off artists that have had about enough with the Grammys. How are you, Natalie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, So tell us a little bit about the Grammy part and what the artists are sort of bubbling under conversation around uh, about the Academy. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of racialist artists have been frustrated with the Grammys for years. I mean, there's been boycotts of the Grammys that have been happening since Will Smith um, and Jazzy Jeff boycotted it. I think it was back in the 80s, 80s or 90s, back when they won their first Grammy, they decided not to show up. And I mean, a lot of that frustration is due to the fact that artists of color are continually snubbed. And when they do win, they only tend to win in the categories such as hip hop or R&B, which are predominantly black. So I think it's a conversation that's been long overdue. And I think a lot of artists are less hesitant to speak out about it. I mean, The weekend went on Twitter and basically blasted the Recording Academy. Halsey spoke out about her snub as well. People have really, really gotten to a point where they're not afraid to say, hey, this is unfair and you're overlooking me and my work. Well, in the case of The weekend, three billion streams, someone had asked us here at The Shift, well, how come we don't get Metallica? <laughs> you know, because Metallica would be a great band for a halftime show, you know, crank it out, rock and roll, fire. That's all great. And I, you know, who's this weekend guy? <laughs> you know, in Metallica's career, they've got like a billion streams and then you've got The weekend in 10 years, he's got three billion. Um His album stream-wise in the last year and a bit has been dynamite. In the last 10 years, his streams and downloads and purchases, because we cross over a couple of music eras there, uh, have been dynamite over and over again. And it's crazy to think that he's not nominated. You You could go as far to argue as that if he wouldn't win something, it would be a disservice. So what are we seeing here? Because, I mean, he... He's a hip hop artist, but he's really not anymore. I mean, he's a pop artist. 
So you can't even throw him in, you know, he doesn't belong in the pop category. Oh, for sure. After Hours, in my opinion, was it's a pop album. It's there's no really R&B. There's no really hip hop. There's none of really the trap beats or any of that sound that's come from some of his earlier works. So it's definitely pop. You hear it on the radio every day. It's popular music. And I think it's really shocking. I think to not get a nod for best pop song, for best pop album, for best pop record, nothing is just so shocking. And I think a lot of the fans were really taken aback and disappointed. And I mean, a lot of them took to Twitter to voice how shocked and upset they were. So it's really quite stunning. And I believe even um, the head of the Grammys himself said he was surprised that Abel didn't get any nods, which just really, really blew a lot of people away. Uh, according to your article, 10 Black artists have won Album of the Year in 62 years. One hip-hop song has won Song of the Year. Five new artist winners uh, in the last 20 years have been people of color. Now, that being said, if you were to go the other way to the you know the hip-hop categories, the R&B categories, and all those things, uh, yeah, you, there's Black people there, right? And so, but when you look at a guy like Eminem, you know, when he tiptoed into the hip-hop and rap worlds, you know, he was welcomed with open arms, right? Like there was no question. So tell me why this lands in particular for you, because you've been a fan of the Grammys music for a long time, Natalie. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's watched the Grammys for years, I mean, I've been watching it since I was a kid. I watched it all the way through high school. When I was in university, I watched the award show. It really was a turning point for me when Macklemore beat Kendrick Lamar. (laughs) And it really, I guess, rocked the music world. People were shocked. Macklemore himself was shocked, sent that apology text to Kendrick that went viral. And I think it just really speaks to the fact that like white artists can come in and do black music and it's absolutely fine. But then when black artists excel at what they do, they don't seem to get that sort of same recognition when it comes to categories that are predominantly white. So it's really frustrating. I think for a lot of racialized artists to say like, I've put out this great body of work, but you're only recognizing it in a category that's comfortable for you by labeling it as hip hop or R and B or whatever it may be. So yeah. It kind of makes sense when you look at Daft Punk, Dead Mouse, Marshmallow, <laughs> and all these people that have kept their identities for the most part hidden for at least some period of time. Mm-hmm. Kind of get why somebody would want to do that <laughs> if do, you want to get I in do. the Grammys, right? I think so. And I think it's frustrating because there are many artists out there who they don't care about winning awards. They just want to make great music. So the fact that like those labels may come in and somehow hinder them and stop them from succeeding because they don't necessarily fit into a neat category due to whatever type of music that they make, I think is just another barrier almost in a way for them to be able to succeed, which is really unfortunate. What's the impact here on the Grammys in your personal opinion? I'm looking forward at all this stuff. Um, I mean, the Grammys are going to nominate who they're going to nominate. I would hope that they would figure it out, but what do you think the impact is here? I think the Grammys are trying to get in the right direction. Like they have launched a diversity and inclusion task force, and they're trying to do all of these things to make the voting process more transparent because there are a lot of like backroom deals and handshake deals that go into like getting an album nominated. Um, A lot of people don't necessarily know this, but artists that are on big labels that have money, they're able to campaign for those albums. And those tend to be bigger, more successful artists, obviously, versus like a little indie musician who may not have the money or the resources to do that. But I think going forward, streaming is so big now. And I think Gen Z 
when they want to hear a song that's popular, they're going to turn to TikTok to find it. They're not going to turn into an award show to see what's popular or what's cool. So I think a lot of people have noticed that award shows don't really carry the same weight that they used to. And part of that is just due to the nature of it being a televised show. And I mean, a lot of us don't necessarily watch TV anymore, but also Mm -hmm. just that that's the way that things are going. I mean, if people aren't recognized, if they want to boycott and people want to stop watching because they feel that people of color are being treated unfairly, it's, it makes a lot of sense. And it is different. I mean, you said TikTok. Megan Thee Stallion is a great example of that. I mean, she's back in school. Love her. Right? Right? (laughs) And so, like, so this is a woman that really has, I would say that her success really is thanks to TikTok. Um, I mean, she's talented and she's done some great, kind of offensive, got to tell you, as (laughs) as a dad. I mean, like, whoa, but uh, make me blush. Um, But but she she's in taking university courses while she's top yeah. of the charts all over the place, right? So there's a lot of um, misnomers about musicians and what they're capable of. But oh, I mean, this yeah. is a problem. This campaigning, this uh, paper play, all of these kinds of things. I mean, this is also a music problem. Mm-hmm. Because to me, I'm like, who cares? Does anybody even care anymore? Uh, but and I would say for most of the most of the um, listening audience, really doesn't even care what you look like. I don't think. They don't. I think people want to hear great music. And yeah, it's, I think, more exciting if they see an artist that's packaged up in a really cool, flashy way. I mean, if you look at Dua Lipa or Lady Gaga, yeah, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's fun. But at the end of the day, are the songs any good? Are the lyrics good? Is the messaging there? You know, all of that has to be there for an artist to, I think, truly be successful. So, Well, Lil Nas X would probably be one of the best examples of... (laughs) Of of people just not giving a shit anymore, frankly, uh, because I mean, not only is he kind of did the country flair with Old Town Road, <laughs> uh, got shut down. Billy Ray steps in, helps him out. He's a black guy who's also gay, um, and so it doesn't like mm-hmm. people don't care. They really don't care anymore. I yeah, and I don't understand why it's a big deal at the Grammys. And I think that just really goes to show you what a perfect example of allyship is. Because if you're someone who, you know, you're facing barriers because you're a black queer musician, people aren't taking you seriously. They think your song is a joke. And then you have someone that's so iconic and so famous who's bigger than you step in and say, wait, this song deserves some credit. Give it a listen. I think it's really great. And then the song blows up. That's how you Mm -hmm. use your power and your platform for good. And that's how you make sure that you're doing right in this industry without taking up space from other people. So I think that that song... I mean, it was huge. It won Grammys. It's won so many awards and went viral and all of that. And it's for a reason. It's because it's a fun song. Mm-hmm. Although a few months later, I was done with it. Just to be clear. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> uh, but the, um, the uh, you know, again, though, the testament being to Billy Ray Cyrus uh, for being the ally and stepping into that and, and acknowledging that part too. But at the same point, if he hadn't, uh, I don't like to talk about what ifs, but if he hadn't, we don't know what the outcome would have been. And I would just like to maybe just leave mm-hmm. that one there. Uh, thanks for being part of this conversation. Uh, I love this. This is great. So please come back and, and join <laughs> us again and and geek out about the music and the things. I love it. I would love to. I am always down to nerd out about music. <laughs> the Grammys and the pushback that has been happening from so many artists, maybe inspired by the weekend, maybe inspired by decades of 
questionable decisions. 1989, Will Smith, the DJ Jazzy Jeff, they boycotted when they were. That's how long that guy's been in the in the limelight, which is crazy, right? That's Natalie Harmson, freelance writer. The article is on globalnews.ca if you do want to check it out. Nighthawk Steve's text message, 877-399-9898. If it's worth anything, I thought the Super Bowl halftime show was awesome. Give that young man an award. I did get a text message from my mom saying, who is this guy? Is he a Michael Jackson wannabe? I don't think he's a Michael Jackson wannabe, but he openly says Michael Jackson was deeply, deeply inspirational for him in his music, which is what happens, right? So that part's okay. The fact that it was a Canadian at the Super Bowl by himself with like hundreds of backup dancers was such a spectacular show. I think it's a proud moment for Canadians. Pretty awesome stuff. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay? Are you okay with Mr. Potato Head? How about gotcha. now? There we go. Yeah. That was weird. I don't know why I'm Hit me. Uh, well, Are you okay with Mr. I Potato Head? I am okay Head? with Mr. Potato Head. Uh, when I went to Disney World in grade seven, the Toy Story ride has the anima, you know, anamorphic robot Mr. Potato Head. And I walked by. And I said, hi, Mr. Potato Head. And then he said, hi, kid in the goofy hat. And I was wearing a goofy hat. And it was the most mind-blowing thing to me. And ever since that day, he's like my favorite side toy in Toy Story. Mm -hmm. I also liked playing with it when I was a kid, like how his butt would open up and you could put the parts parts inside. It was a fun fun (laughs) toy. Great toy. Um, That's good. I love that. Um, let's, Let's get a clip of Mr. Potato Head. Potato Heads, Mr. and Mrs. You gotta keep them together because they're madly in love. Oh, oh, you found it! Oh, it's so nice to have a big, strong spot around the house. Oh. <laughs> you saved their lives. We are eternally grateful. Oh. You saved their lives. Oh, my hero. And they're so adorable. Okay, so what makes a potato a man or a woman? Is it just the mustache, right? Or is it simply the name for a potato? Hasbro is rebranding its decades-old line of Mr. Potato Head toys to make them a single gender-neutral toy with swappable limbs and accessories in a move slated to take effect later this year. Hasbro says it's making the change to give the toy a modern makeover amid a broader push to more inclusivity in the toy industry. But in a tweet later that afternoon, Hasbro clarified that Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head characters will still live on and be sold in stores, but under the Potato Head brand. Is this going too far? Well, I mean, it's kind of genius because they create a brand the potato head. And now you have to buy two, you know, you buy two separate ones. You buy the Mr. Potato Head set and the Mrs. Potato Head set, and then they'll probably come up with different potato heads under the Potato Head brand. But at the end of the day, it's a potato. So, you know, throw a mustache or whatever you want. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a potato. That's kind of how I see it. I mean, I, I at face value, I understand why some people were like, "Oh, it's so stupid." But really, it's a potato. 
It's a potato. I guess that when you buy Mr. Potato Head, you get the mustache and such. And when you buy Mrs. Potato Head, you get the lipstick lips and stuff like that. I would assume that that's the way it works out. When I had a potato head, it was long, long time ago. So, um, but I think they're missing an amazing opportunity here. Because one of the cool things about Potato Head, if you fast forward into this sort of modern makeover idea, is if you have a Mr. Potato Head with a mustache and lipstick lips, that to me seems more life appropriate today than than anything, right? Like who says Mr. Potato Head can't be where Mrs. Potato Head's clothes, right? You know what I'm saying? I think that it it just it I think it's kind of a missed opportunity to instead of making it gender neutral, just make it all one big bowl of whatever you want your potato head to look like. Well, it's I'm I'm kind of interested. So tomorrow I'm going to go to Toys R Us because Laura and I in the future will be having a Lego date where we build Lego together. It's going to be awesome. But I'm going to find a potato head and a Mr. Potato Head. And I just want to see how they're marketed right now. Like what's on the box and if it's really mm-hmm. going to be any different than what it is currently. Because it could literally just be like a way to stir up some attention to marketing. the brand. Yeah. But uh, from a marketing standpoint, I think Hasbro knows what it's doing. I did see a tweet that made me laugh. Like Hasbro needs to take the word bro out of their name after this. Uh, oh, that is kind of funny, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know the meaning of Hasbro and where it comes from. Uh, Hazard Brothers, maybe. Who knows? But the, um, you know, I just think that it's a missed opportunity. Who cares? If Mr. Potato Head wears lipstick and the dress, then who cares, right? Let Mr. Potato Head. Like, you are still allowed to be Mr. Potato Head and wear lipstick. So I think they still, I think it's, I think they're missing something. I really do. Okay. Well, 877-399-9898. Um, you can send in your text messages. Most of them that are coming in so far are dirty. <laughs> uh, going insanely too far, says Anonymous. The only thing a potato good, is good for is French fries. And you got to say it like that. It's not potato head. It's potato. Potato. Um, potato head. Catherine says Barbie needs to have jeans. Uh, Barbie's comes in all kinds of different sizes, shapes, and colors now. That's a step. But, mm-hmm. you know, you could be right. Maybe they should come up with like a short Barbie, like the vertically challenged Barbie, who's like five foot one. And didn't make it in modeling because she was too short. You Same. know, when I worked at EB Games, they had video game character Barbies, which I think is super cool. Like, it's a way to get, you know, girls into video games. Hey, look, Laura Croft from Tomb Raider is now a Barbie. No, oh, sweet. Mm. You know, I think that's a great yeah, idea. It's a good idea. Um, Lyle says, Mrs. Potato Head should have more eyes. As my mom said many years ago, she had eyes in the back of her head. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good mom story. Okay, are you okay? You can share your thoughts with Are You Okay? Just 877-399-9898. You're welcome to contribute anytime you'd like to the show. For this Are You Okay, though, we want to play, play you this particular clip completely out of context and not tell you what it is. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Even if they let her go, he's going to go looking. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. Liam Neeson, 100%. Mm -hmm. Unless it's a Christmas show where his adopted son is playing the drums. Wrong movie. Sometimes you just don't want to go to work. 
Maybe you suck it up and go anyway, or maybe you just call in sick. Perhaps you make up a fake emergency, such as a pipe burst in your house, or there was a death in your family. There was an employee of one of my companies once who said he had to go to the hospital and took a picture, a selfie of himself, lying in what looked like a hospital bed. Oh, no way. We caught him because he was wearing a dust mask, not a medical mask. Oh. So there are lots of great reasons to fake great ways to fake not going to work. That was not the way to do it. My business partner, whoa, he's a yeller to begin with on a good day. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That was an adventure. No. Uh, Maybe you tie yourself up and throw yourself on the side of the road and fake your own kidnapping. There's an idea. Why wouldn't you? That's exactly what a man did to get out of his hump day shift at work on Wednesday, according to police and court records in the town of Coolidge, Arizona. Here's more from NBC3. And his plan worked, or at least he thought it would. He informed us that he was hit in the head and stuffed in a car in front of his home. And this occurred a little after 7 o'clock in the morning. But when we located video surveillance of uh, in front of his home, we... We were able to see no such thing. Brandon explaining the so-called kidnapping was over a large amount of money that his father had hid somewhere around town. That elaborate story all made up, along with a slew of text message evidence he claimed to have. Coolidge Police Department detectives brought him in on the 17th of February and we questioned him. After we showed him all the information, he admitted that he fabricated the story because he didn't want to go to work. Something Brandon won't have to worry about anymore. Police saying he was fired from his job at the tire factory in Coolidge. Instead, he had to report to jail, where he was charged with reporting false information and already, we're told, pleading guilty to the crime. (laughs) So stupid. Just call in sick. Seriously, this is the time of year where you call in sick and your employer is most likely going to say, just stay home. If you stay really home. can't go to work that day, just be honest. Cause your boss is either going to say, all right, yeah, it's fine. I'm glad you were honest with me. Or he's going to say, suck it up and come into work. So I just, it's so stupid. I, it's hilarious. This kid, mm. this guy must've really not wanted to go to work. Well, that's a little extreme. Don't you think? Right. Wow. Um, the New York Times reported Souls didn't respond immediately Tuesday in a request for a comment, uh, probably because they couldn't reach him in the trunk of the car, or wherever he might have been. Okay, I'm particularly excited about this one. I don't know how to ask this question. I, I think I've got one way to go. I might try the other one, though. Uh-oh. Two options here. Are you Okay. Are you okay with a menage a tree? I don't know. <laughs> well, I wasn't asking I you. Like, it, well, that wasn't okay. an invite. Okay. It was just right. an are you, you okay? Okay. Jeez, good. man. Don't um, flatter yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I just take things literally. <laughs> I take it like I hear it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I could answer that question. Okay, let me ask it this way. Are you okay? Leo, hit the button. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) 
Are you okay with a threesome? <laughs> There's something happening in a tree, with a tree, surrounding a tree. <laughs> Could be a couple I of trees. I like trees. I'll leave it there. I'm okay with trees. What happens in the tree, around the tree, situational. All right, let's get the clip. Mom, don't move. We can't let it get out of the living room. <laughs> Where's Eddie? He usually eats these goddamn things. Oh, not recently, Clark. He read the squirrels were high in cholesterol. Thank you, Catherine. Is he gone? Probably got scared and ran back into the tree. I didn't know what clip was coming. <laughs> that was hard to get creative with that one. Okay, so here is the scenario. It's the best photograph in a long time. A photographer on safari in South Africa was left a little bit stunned when he was looking through the lens of his camera, and he noticed three squirrels engaged in a tree threesome. So thankfully, you don't need to see the picture. We're not forcing it upon you if you want to Google it. Be careful where you Google it at work and stuff, but it's out there. So uh, Mac Waugh from Seattle, USA, was photographing a family of mongooses when he caught uh, he was caught off by a guard. Who he was caught off guard by romping rodents in the tree. Like any photographer, worth their salt. Max wasted no time in snapping away at the squirrel sex string that Mother Nature had presented him with. It was <laughs> oh natural, if you will. He said it was a total surprise. He thought uh, it would be pretty weird uh, if it wasn't. That's a good point. He said, I was completely unexpected. Obviously, it appeals to one's more juvenile sense of humor. More seriously, I'm always excited to capture rare and unexpected animal behavior. This certainly qualifies, he said. I believe that the only time I've witnessed something similar in the animal kingdom involved a multiple male sea turtles trying to attach themselves to a female in the Galapagos Islands. I want to travel with this guy. It sounds fun. Having taken a close look at the menage a trois, Max offered up a bit of a bonk train analysis. He said, based on the order from left to right of the three squirrels, it was a side profile of squirrels mating. And based on the order, my best guess, it's male, or excuse me, female, male, male. But there's no guarantee of that. And if you watch the photos that he took beforehand in this, there was uh, one squirrel mounting another squirrel. This is this is my broadcast career right here. This is what, the, what it's come to. I'm talking about squirrels mounting. Uh. And I'm using my hands as trying to describe it and talk with my hands. There's one squirrel there, and there's another squirrel mating with the other squirrel, like mm -hmm. squirrels do. In one of the photos, there's a third squirrel that's creeping out on the side that's watching. And ready. <laughs> and, and then decides, I'm getting in on this, and goes and mounts the third squirrel uh, to complete the threesome, if you will. Oh. You know, and, the, the stories yeah. from Lad Bible, and I highly recommend you just read the full interview with this guy because he gets pretty creative with how he describes what the hell he just witnessed. And I kind of just want his whole career to now be writing animal instances and describing them. All I can say is this. It looks like it's female, male, male. And uh, the male who was there first was not letting go. That's really what it looked like. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, don't Google that on a work computer, please. That's my advice. Treesome menage a tree. Mm.
I don't know. Are you okay? Are you okay with texting your ex? That's a tough one. Never a good idea. Unless it is like, hey, I've got this stuff for you. Or you've just had a really like eye-opening conversation where you kind of solve some stuff. And then you text after and say, thanks for that. See you later. But if you, you know, just break up, never, never a good idea. Oh, yeah, don't do that. Um, Okay, so here's the rules. No good text messages to exes happen after midnight. Yep. Oh, you you said it. You said it. Most things in life after midnight, nothing good happens. This is one of them. The other thing is, is that also if your ex texts you, I don't know if you have to declare it because you don't want to cause a problem. You can dismiss it, let it go, like finish it, be done. But don't like quickly close your phone. (laughs) When your partner walks in the room <laughs> and hide it. That's that is bad. Be honest. Okay. A man called his ex a moron by text while storming the Capitol. She turned him in. Who's <laughs> the moron now? <laughs> uh, Richard Minchetti's ex handed the FBI evidence of the riots that he sent her while the riot was happening. Moron. Here's a clip. Richard Machetti's ex-girlfriend called law enforcement the day after the insurrection and reported him. She later provided the FBI with text messages and videos sent by him. In a lot of these arrests for the Capitol rioters, we've seen uh, people who were um, turned in and tipped off um, by close associates, even family members. Through their research, authorities were able to identify the Delaware County man in the crowd on Capitol grounds and also inside the Capitol. In his text messages, he called himself and other rioters patriots, not revolutionaries. Those detailed messages became a record of his every step to D.C. and eventually into the U.S. Capitol, including when Machete got tear gas in his eyes. He told her... um, you're a moron if you don't believe uh, that the election was stolen. In federal court, he's facing a number of charges, including being on restricted buildings or grounds, disorderly conduct, criminal entry. And how drunk did he get at his last family gathering to have like his, your exes and your family members turn you in for this? Man. I, uh, the, (laughs) This guy's such an idiot, and I love it. It's uh, that's the funniest thing. That's the that's the one thing about the Capitol riots that's so incredible is the amount of people who have got turned in because of the dumb stuff they did while they were there. Aside from you know storming the Capitol, just yep. hey, I'm at the Capitol doing something super illegal. Check it out, everyone. The best guy, in my opinion, is not the Viking um, organic guy who won't eat in prison. It's the guy who stole the podium. And walked out and waved. He looked like, where's Waldo? And like, we found Waldo. He's stealing the podium, the lectern. That was my favorite of the stupids. It's the Shift Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt on the Shift with Brian Lanier. We've had Brian on a few times. It's great to see your face again, Brian. Thank you for coming and joining us and having a little more conversation on the Shift. You know, you're welcome here every day. I can just give you the key code to the studio. (laughs) You can come on whenever you like. 
There you go. I, uh, right yeah, you know, I, I've struggled with one thing, Brian, that um, that is keep coming up for me in this conversation because it is February, because it's Black History Month. And we've been in, and this is my own thing. I got it going on. But as my friend, I know that I can trust in sharing this with you, that it is inspired conversation um, around race. And we've had a lot of different guests on, including you. From a lot of different angles, from from bias to biracial children and how to talk to children and how to look at families different, how do we look at ourselves different and and our family lineage and how we all have this sort of jambalaya of, you know, of geography. And um, but I still come back to one place and I get stuck on Shane. Are you talking about this because it's Black History Month? Now, I know in my heart I'm not. I know that I made a commitment last summer to myself uh, when I was doing the Roy Green show and then to myself with you when you and I were talking about um, George Floyd and how that inspired you to start writing a little bit differently and to create your life a little bit differently. So I know all those things, but I just wanted to bring that to presence because it's a good example of some of the things that we go through around this topic around race, that we feel like it's taboo. Um, Oh God, don't get it wrong and don't talk about it just to talk about it, but it's got to have purpose. And I know that we have purpose here and we'll share that shortly, but I just wanted to bring presence to that because it's very real for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I don't know if that's okay or not. And maybe I'm looking for your affirmation in that. Um, you know, are we talking about things the right way? Well, you and I are having a conversation. So we're, we're two individuals having a conversation. And in and, and any conversation, there's, there's not a right way. You know, I think that's, that could be where people get hung up. Now, I'm, I'm a man who was born with a particular pigmentation of skin color that's distinct from yours. And uh, I'm a person, just like you're a person. And I can't speak for all people of any particular group. And so I don't think that it's a a matter of right and wrong, Hmm. really. Well, that's a great reminder. And and, And having said that, Jane, I do appreciate that, especially now with everything that's happened, I do hear often from friends of mine of all groups, you know, from all different kind of backgrounds, they are uncomfortable having a conversation about race anytime. So I think on the one hand, I think that's refreshing because if we can open up and go where we typically don't go, I think it has us be more connected ultimately. I just wrote something actually um, that you've brought me to uh, before we got on the call. It was an unrelated topic, but um, this is what I wrote and I feel compelled to share it now. Uh, I was, someone had said to me about being lost. I'm feeling lost. And Mm -hmm. I started to write and it said, uh, lost is finding a new place that we don't recognize. So are we ever really lost? Perhaps we're just unprepared and fearful. Lost is simply discovery blinded by fear and a lack of control. So Mm -hmm. in the spirit of discovery, Mm -hmm. uh, being found in a new place, um, Right, we get to get into a conversation about uh, some different things that are new to me that we shared with a little bit before. Which, by the way, about the fact that we're just two people, I would still put you as chairperson of the handsome club. Just saying, <laughs> butter you up a little bit. <laughs> okay, when we when we chatted with Bi- about bias a couple of weeks ago, you introduced us to the Calgary Black Chamber and yes. a, a group of folks that are looking to uh, do amazing things across multiple cult- uh, cultures. It's not just, you know, for young black people or young black students or whatever. I mean, it is the BIPOC community 
uh, black indigenous people of color. So tell us a little bit about the Calgary Black Chamber, because I think it translates to all the communities that are listening across Canada about just local citizens standing up uh, for what they believe in. Happy to. Yeah. So I am the uh, one of several people that is volunteering their time to make a difference with this nonprofit organization. So the Calgary Black Chambers was started a little over a year ago by uh, Hall of Fame CFL Stampeder John Cornish and several other Black professionals and entrepreneurs. We've got people with that are distinguished uh, people that are lawyers and teachers and academics and all walks of life. And what we saw was, what they saw, because I wasn't here at the very beginning, but what they saw was that there was a need for us to come together and support other Black professionals and entrepreneurs and students. And so we have different areas that we're advocating. I, I have been uh, got the privilege of being the vice chair of our advocacy committee. And there are things that we're advocating. We're actually being a voice, amplifying this in our community and three different areas. And uh, it's exciting. It's great working with other Black professionals and entrepreneurs, and it's great coming together, and it's great and privileged. I happen to be a mentor to a 15, uh, excuse me, 16-year-old uh, high school student. And uh, it's very fulfilling. And we have some big, big challenges, and we're just beginning. So what kind of things do you guys dig into with the Black, uh, the Calgary Black Chambers? Um, you know, I know that you guys did a YouTube special a couple of weeks ago uh, with some awards and nominations and acknowledgements. Tell us a little bit about what you're getting up to. Yeah. So we're, first of all, we're advocating in three different areas. One is we're, we're advocating for us a strong voice for Black people. And then another area that we're advocating for is the inclusion of Black history in our community, to have it be natural, not something only separated celebrated, if you will, you know, once one month a year. And then also we're av actually advocating for greater black representation. And we're not talking about affirmative action. We're not talking about imposing quotas. We want this to be an inclusive, natural type of uh, evolution in Calgary. And we had our black achievement awards. We're very proud of them because uh, the board, John, under John's uh, leadership, the board came together and kicked off this initiative and we had over 400 people nominated here in Calgary for different areas and business and the arts, et cetera. 400 people nominated by their uh, community to be represented. And we gave out different awards and it was a night of celebration. And I think it, it got us on the map. You know, I think it was the beginning of people really hearing that we're serious and we're here for a long-term view. And it was a way to acknowledge achievement of Blacks here in our community. Now, in those awards, there was a lot of nominations and contribution in some places, which I suppose is somewhat typical of all industry. But there was a couple of notable areas that had a lack of people. And mm -hmm. one of them was the, now, is it science, technology, and math? Did I get that right? Is that the group? Yeah, it's uh, STEM is the acronym. So we gave an achievement award to Blacks who have achievements in the area of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You forgot the I forgot E. The e. I, was, I wasn't sure if the E was part of the tech or if, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So uh, is that common? I don't know if you I mean, even have this data in front of you. Is it a common industry that, that lacks diversity just 
by the way it is today or or is it something that just young people aren't inspired by so much? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've read a lot about what's the cause of it. In reality, we had a significantly lower amount of people nominated in Calgary in the science, technology, engineering, mathematic field than we had in the other mm-hmm. fields. Now, I think part of it and what I've read in research is that we do have something that has happened historically that's in the system, if you will, where some people in education have steered black people or other groups to particular careers in high school or in elementary school, which doesn't have, has us go to the areas that we stereotypically see people that are black in. Unfortunately, there are not enough of us in the science, technology, engineering, and mathematic field because we believe once people start seeing, oh, yeah, it's possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, oh, okay, I can do this. There's somebody out there that looks like me. I can actually make a difference in this area. So that's what we're advocating. Well, and I've heard that specifically. I mean, my friend Brandon Alexander, who's been on the show, uh, he's an actor down in Los Angeles. Um he specifically credits that moment, that moment where he saw an actor who looks like him, actually in his case, rather uncanny, um, looks like him to become the fact that he could graduate from just being a dancer to being an actor and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that, that is a real piece of mentorship to show that by the way, you know, you can do this. I don't think it's a whole lot dissimilar than, say, Barack Obama becoming president and having a whole bunch of people become president um, or inspired to become president just because of the color of his face and the fact that he did it. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, Obama, people became community organizers as a result of seeing uh, Obama, you know, get to be president of the United States. I mean, because he started off organizing in his community and, uh, it makes a big difference for us to see people like us. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to acknowledge the winner, though, of our our first ever Black Achievement Awards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. Nicole Johnson. Nicole Johnson is at the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute, and she's somebody who actually uh, focuses on uh, rheumatic diseases for children. That you know, this type of rheumatoid arthritis is can be devastating for young kids between eight years old and early teens. And she is on the cutting edge of, uh, you know, coming up with ways to address this crippling disease. So a shout out for Nicole Johnson. Uh, very cool. And I, I want to acknowledge uh, the uh, Brandon's actor uh, was Chadwick Boseman. Uh, was the actor who inspired him and, and uncanny how much they look alike. So, so you mentor, I mean, you're a dad, but you also um, mentor uh, young people as part of this program too. How important is that for all of us just to hear? I would like to hear, maybe you share your heart a little bit because personally, I know Brian. So in all, you know, transparency for everybody. So I do know how much mentorship is a part of you. It's, it, you know, in general, in your, your business life and your personal life. But in this case, when you step back into your community and you're able to mentor, like what, what's the payoff, you know, in your heart? Like how, do, how does that feel for you? Oh, it's, it's worth 
it's priceless because when you have the opportunity to have a, a front row seat, if you will, and be a witness and contribute however you contribute to seeing someone grow. And um, it's analogous to planting a seed in a garden and then seeing it flower. I mean, the fulfillment, the nurturing, the tilling to it. And I learn and grow exponentially as well. So it's not like I have some great sage advice, you know, that I'm going to impart on uh, Benjamin, the fifth, the 16 year old, you know, high school student. He teaches me, you know, I learn and grow by listening and looking from a new lens like he does. Uh, And then also with adults, as you know, I've had the privilege of leading uh, and mentoring, you know, to groups, large groups of people uh, um, over a three month time period. And that is so fulfilling to see people be vulnerable and be open and to grow. There's just nothing like it. This is The Shift Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's The Shift, continuing our conversation with Brian Lanier. Now, Brian, you were just talking about mentorship and the impact of mentoring younger people on you. There's really nothing like it. When we look at this conversation around, you know, race and I'm going to say investment, and I don't mean dollars, I mean you know, investing in our future, investing in the people that matter, investing in our family and our communities. I mean, the word community is a grossly under-respected word, I've learned, and the value of community. So when we invest in that, I we've noticed some patterns here. There are conversations about politics. There are conversations about provinces. There are, province, are conversations about municipalities. There are conversations inside neighborhoods, communities, race, Uh, sexual orientation, um, all of those things. And they all come down to one simple pattern for me. And maybe that's my logical brain kicking in, but there's a pattern here. And the pattern is the conversation is hard. It is hard to sit down with someone who politically you don't see the same perspective as. It's hard to sit down with somebody from another province where the belief system might be a little bit different. It's hard to sit down with someone who's not from your community because their community has a different church than yours, and so on and so forth. Do you see that pattern there? Because to me, that seems like where a lot of this conversation around race really gets addressed. Yeah, I do see that pattern, Shane. And I think for myself it gives me an opportunity to um, look newly and discover, okay, that person over there has vastly different points of view than I do. So what I'm trying to take on now, and I'm practicing it, believe me, what I'm about to say, I am not masterful at it. But when I have somebody and I'm sitting across the table from somebody or talking to somebody and I can tell their politics are different than mine or their points of view are different than mine, instead of, trying to educate them or argue with them, I'm asking questions. I'm asking questions to actually find out, you know, where are they coming from? I might learn something new. For example, there was a situation I was around and somebody was talking about, you know, look at the lazy black people, you know, look at, you know, they've given, we've given them all this, but they're just standing around. Every time I, Go down to a certain part of town and just see these black men standing around, you know, and they said this in my presence. Now, I could argue and I could 
tell them about unconscious bias and I could tell them, you know, about this, but that won't make any difference. And I've done that before and it makes no difference. Instead, engage them in a question, a conversation like, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I've seen that too when I go through that part of town. What do you think it would be like for that person in the middle of the day to be standing out on the street corner? What do you think? What kind of life do you think that they've had? What kind of situation and circumstances do you think that would you speculate that they've dealt with? And then that actually shifts the conversation and they're looking as well. And I'm not attacking them. So perspective is, is so much. If we could just agree that it's possible that our perspective is that when we start a hard conversation, starting place, what if we're both right? And understand right as in true to our perspective, not right and wrong morality, but just what if we're both right? It doesn't mean we're accurate. It doesn't mean it's the only perspective. But if we look at things from the perspective of this is what I know, and this is what you know, even though we disagree, it's possible that we're both right. That to me seems like how we start conversations where we can work together because you can find common ground if you can just respect someone else's perspective. Mm. Yeah, I would amplify that last piece. You can find common ground if we can just respect someone else's perspective. That's powerful. So I can't argue, you know, you're sitting where you're sitting and we're on Zoom right now for your listeners, but you're seat looking over here and there are things that you can see looking at from your perspective that I can't see that are behind me. And there are things that I can see that are behind you. So if we didn't have our, you know, mirror image with our cameras on, I, I could talk to you all day long and tell you what's behind you, but that wouldn't make any difference you know, you'd, if we're arguing, right? right. But if I get, okay, you have a perspective and you're, that's your perspective that, and it's, it's nothing to be argued with or fought. Mm-hmm. And often, it's great. and often misunderstood. I always use the example of the child child goes into the class. Teacher says, what color is the sky? child says gray and then she says no the sky is blue and the Mm. child goes no the sky is gray and he looks out the window and sure enough it's a cloudy day it doesn't mean that they're wrong it just means that they're looking at it from a different perspective so how do we how do we translate that into how do we translate that into this conversation about about race and and where we're at today because if we can understand that our perspective and i'm going to call it for what it is knowledge is nothing but a memory So if we're using tapping into knowledge to have a new discussion, it doesn't really service us because we're speaking from the past. So listening comes into presence and speaking from today, right now. How do we translate all of this into making a big impact in understanding race discussions? Mm. That is a big question, isn't it? I think it starts off by what we're doing here. First, we're becoming aware that for a lot of us, we're uncomfortable even having the conversation. So it starts with self-awareness. And then if you're committed to making a difference in this area, like any other area that's important to you, uh, educate thyself, you know, read, learn, study, 
Uh, seek out people that you don't normally seek out and speak with. Uh, become an ally, if you will, of groups that are mis- underrepresented. Um, let me share something with you about just about that for myself. I was recently on a volunteer committee and we've been working together for several months and there's six of us on the committee. And I was saying at the end of the call, Hey, great call guys. You know, it's a zoom call. Now there was a person on that call, Michelle previously entered in, um, related to herself as Michael and Michelle stopped the conversation and Michelle said, excuse me, Brian, when you just said that I went away, I felt excluded because I am not guys. I'm Michelle. Now that opened up my eyes. I had no knowledge of the impact of me using that word that it would have as a microaggression, if you will, landing on Michelle. However, what it did is it opened up a conversation with Michelle and myself, and I ended up learning about transgender transgender, and learning about what it was like for her in a way that I hadn't before. So that's just one experience of looking at areas where you aren't that familiar or where I wasn't that familiar before. Well, to take, take your word then, um, do you have an ally in Michelle now? I do. I I have I have an awareness about Michelle and what I think from what Michelle has shared with me, what it must be like for her to have gone from being born Michael to creating herself as Michelle. And that's an that's an experience that I didn't have before I even had the you know this discovery if you know and how flippant is it too in life today when you walk into the shoe store or the restaurant and that you get greeted and the the staff member says hi guys and there you are walking in with yvonne right and it's become this non-accurate flippant use of the word not really even realizing that that it is you know somewhat gender specific uh, by its definition so okay so allyship is a thing Mm -hmm. um Allyship is not race, though. It's not transgender. It's not. Um, it's not just one thing. So, is it possible that we could um, use that perspective of um, creating new relationships, creating new allies, and and that would be, I think, the core of the pattern. We said earlier in the conversation that there's a pattern that's going on here. So, is that is that get to the core of it? I think that it starts with. The individual, what are you, are you committed to living a life where you're making a difference and contributing to others? And if you are, and my experience is most people on the planet are, then I, my experience, and you have to look for yourself, everybody, but I get more when I give back than when I take, or I give more when I am a mentor than if I simply, you know, take care of myself or as a sponsor or when I've been sponsored or when someone has been an ally for me. It's not the answer. However, it's an access in the fulfillment of who I say I am and what my life is about is making a difference. You know, I want to make a difference while I'm here for the brief time that I'm here. 
And I can do that as an ally. I can do that as a sponsor. I can do that as a mentor. Well, a mentor, coach, leader, that's a whole other uh, conversation we can have about the difference between the vast difference uh, between those three words. Okay, so here is a question that has occurred to me now. After the audience has gotten to know you through so many conversations that I've, you know, we've shared time with here on the, on the shift. What about you? What about mentorship for Brian? I'm going to ask you to go backwards in time, Brian. And Mm. if you don't mind, share with me a mentor or person, if you will, an ally that you had somewhere along the way that you could, uh, I don't know, maybe it's share gratitude about, um, share the impact that they had on you. Is there one particular person that comes to mind that, that you, you know, shifted the course to create this Brian that we know today? Oh yes. Several, so many. And, uh, one that jumped immediately to mind is Jay McGuire. Uh, Jay McGuire was my boss when I worked with a, a, quick service restaurant, also known as a fast food restaurant chain. And I was a director of operations for uh, 125 of them at one time. But he's somebody who hired me. He's somebody who, he was up from the States and he was up from the South in the States. And he looked after me having opportunities for growth and development. So what I mean by that is, in that company, there was a time when you um, you couldn't get promoted until, unless you had a certain degree, university degree. Now, this is not the conversation that people around me talked about. You know, I was like, I was running the largest region in Canada. So I didn't think, you know, I thought it was all set. But he pulled me aside and said, now, if you want to get to the executive level, you know, like the, the big, big level, you're going to have to go back because it's our company policy. They're in this company is in 145 countries. They've got over 25 locations, 25,000 locations. So it's big. He was talking to me about what's it take to get to the big, big, big boys table. And he encouraged me to uh, go back and get my MBA. And I went back and got my master's of business administration. And he actually moved meetings And he ensured that depending on my exam load, you know, he worked the business around that. So I would not be left out when we did international trips, you know, if I had a big uh, major research paper. But Jay was just invaluable in terms of listening and sponsoring me. And I'll never forget him for that. Brian Lanier, um, Calgary Black Chambers, Vice Chair, Advocacy Key. Why can't I say it? Come on, brain, don't fail me now. Advocacy Committee. Um, thanks again for the time. I, I would really like to lean into this STEM thing, the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We're a little geeky here on the shift. I think we embrace it. And so we, I think we know geeky people. So I think that's something we can probably lean into. And if anybody else is interested... Um, you can just go to the website. Uh, do you want to pass that on so everyone can reach out, Brian? Because if it's not, if there's not an organization like this in their community that might be interested in, in getting involved. The Calgary Black Chamber? Yeah, Calgary Black Chambers with an S dot C-A. Calgary Black Chambers dot C-A. And uh, John Cornish is the, also the VP of Handsome. Just saying. He's a nice guy. <laughs> I've met him before. Thanks so much, Brian. 
Thanks, Shane. All the best. It's the Shift Podcast. It's time for In Case You Missed It with Ryan O'Dell. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Ryan. That's how I feel going into Friday. Friday. Now, it's Friday. Man, that feels good. Okay. Uh, It does feel good. Do you have a show that you look back on, not from when you were a kid, but like when Mm -hmm. you were kind of a young teenager that you think is like super cool and... You look back on it, and it's like it wasn't really a kid's show. I just really enjoyed that show. Wasn't a kid's show, but I looked back on it. and From your younger I, years. From my younger years. Wasn't a kid's show. I don't know. I, Twin Peaks, I liked, but I was in college then. Mm. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I suppose, was a big one. I didn't really watch, like, Beverly Hills 90210. Okay. Um, I don't know. Frasier was another one. X Files, yep. I suppose. That's um, a, those are all good, especially X Files. Um, one of the biggest impactful ones for me, though, when I was um, a little bit older, you know, I was a young adult at the time, though, mm-hmm. is, you know, I would watch my shows and then put my sunglasses on. C.S. Love that show. Nice. Great choices. My my show was animated and technically made for kids. However, this show has gained a international beloved community behind it because the show itself tackles very mature storylines while being presented as a cartoon. And it's kind of coming back in a huge new way. It's getting movies, comics, more. And let me tell you, Twitter was lighting up about it. It's the tweet of the day. Oh, my Lordy Lou. Ladies and germs. Did you say Lordy Lou? My Lordy Lou, yeah. I like that. Yeah, I can't remember where I heard that for the first time. Uh, But anyway... Uh, Avatar The Last Airbender is back. Not the absolutely tragic, horrible M. Night Shyamalan movie. No. The unbelievable cartoon show. It was important when I was young, and it was even more important when I was a teenager. I rewatched this show two years ago, and it was the best time I've ever watched it. Like, I, my most recent viewing of it was the best one. Laura and I read the comics together. There's amazing stories and characters here. And it's coming back, but not just like a revival. Nickelodeon is launching a whole studio devoted to Avatar The Last Airbender content. Animated series, movies, and also based on the sequel show, which is The Legend of Korra. And this is the, what I'm about to play for you is the theme for Avatar, and it pretty much will give you an exact idea of what the show is about if you've never seen it. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. Well, 100 years later, 
These two kids find him trapped in a ball of ice. And it's a journey of this kid who's literally like 10 years old learning about the responsibility of basically becoming the only person who can master all four elements and defeat the Fire Nation, which is like an analogy for imperialist Japan from World War II. There's some crazy deep stuff going on in the show. And if you're a fan of anime or animation in general, I highly recommend watching the show. Trust me, it is glorious. The exciting thing here is that the first project is already lined up and it's going to be a full animated movie that will go to theaters entering production next year or this year. Sorry. I like that they're doing a animated thing, not a live action. Animation is where this kind of thing thrives and uh, I'm really glad they're going for it. Now, I'm wondering how you're probably wondering, how does this relate back to Twitter? Well, long ago, <laughs> Netflix was going to have an Avatar live-action series. But then the creators left due to creative differences. And the tweet of the day is courtesy of a user, Tropical Maku, who said, this is the biggest F-U, I'll do it myself move. Because Ooh. Nickelodeon Animation says we are announced, excited to announce that the Avatar Studios are going to be helmed by the co-creators of the people who were doing the Netflix show. So they didn't like what Netflix was letting them do there. So Nickelodeon says, okay, you can do it here and have full creative control. I think it's amazing. Wow. And I kind of love that it's sticking with Nickelodeon. That is kind of cool. You know, uh, there's an interesting text came in from Trucker Dan. It says, I wonder if Avatar uh, is influenced by shows like Robotech. And the one that gets me, what I think is most accurate with is Astro Boy. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Those early, you know, entryways to anime and all that. I'm not a big anime guy, but this show really pushes the boundaries of, of animation and cartoons. And uh, one of my first big Lego sets was an Avatar Lego set. And so a lot of nostalgia there, but also uh, I just want to go watch the show right now. It's so wonderful. Check it out. It's on Netflix. We'll see for how much longer before Paramount Plus, which is going to be yet another streaming service you have to pay for. Mm -hmm. oh, another one. Now. My God. Okay. We pay more for TV now than we did before. When Remember yep. when it was like, cable's so expensive. And now, now it's like, more. now I've got 11 streaming services and I pay mm -hmm. twice as much as cable. Watch. In like a year from now, somebody's going to come up. We have a way where you can pay for one thing and it'll have all your favorite streaming services on it. It's basically cable, except we won't market it as cable. Well, I will tell you this, that it's not the company um, that w we work for at all, but I have Teleservice and I'll give them credit because it's a good product. I get Netflix for free included with my Telus. Even I was paying for Netflix and then they migrated my account and it's included in my cable package. Yeah, well, I'm on Shaw, which is us for reference, and uh, I have Crave included, for example. Right, so there so you go. So there's it packages, could get better. But it could get better. It, and hopefully it does, because it's too expensive, especially because you can buy packages with 4K, and that's a topic for another day, which we should definitely do. That's In the meantime, mm -hmm. let's talk about the one of the earliest forms of media and art mm. in paintings. Oh. This is a story that absolutely blew my mind. A painting of Paris by Vincent van Gogh, which has almost never been seen by the public after being stashed with a French family's private collection for more than a hundred years, wow. was finally unveiled. Street scene 
and Monte, oh God, Montmartre, Mont, Mont, street scene in Paris, was painted in the spring of 1887, which was three years before Van Gogh uh, committed suicide. Now, it shows Parisians walking through a rural, sparse landscape in a, a historic district in <laughs> Paris. Sorry, I just read the word. Montmartre. Yeah. Montmartre. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, it's fine. I get it. It's horrible. I, I, I might part French Canadian and I'm horrible at French. I feel bad. Now, the painting is set to go in public display, display for the first time ever. But before that, it was sold at auction in Paris. It's going to be sold at auction in Paris, sorry. And it's going to fetch between 5 million and 8 million euros. Wow. I think it will go for more than that. I think this is going to go for an enormous amount of money. And that's because Van Gogh is probably the most famous painter in the world uh, right now. There is this whole movement behind understanding his work and its influences. And people love it. People get Starry Night tattoos. They have Starry Night paintings all over their room. And it's such an appealing art form. And part of that is there's a craze behind it because it is amazing time to be a Van Gogh fan. There is a Toronto-based exhibit that is worldwide Ooh, now and it is coming to yeah. Edmonton in the spring. And uh, this is it. You're going to want to check it out. There's looking at a painting and then there's enveloping yourself in it. The canvas is the walls, the floor and ceiling, a kaleidoscope of color and brush strokes moving around you. It's where filmmaking and art and music and emotion and experiential walking through something all come together in a very unique uh, and different way. Immersive Van Gogh debuted in Paris last year, drawing more than two million visitors. It even made a cameo in the Netflix series, Emily in Paris, when she's immersed in the glow of the painter's shifting images. This is incredible. Starry night. For the last four months, the animated art exhibit has been in Toronto, where it was modified for smaller groups and social distancing. Still, each show sells out weeks in advance as people clamor to step inside the Dutch Impressionist painter's most famous works like Sunflowers, Cafe Terrace at Night, and the chaotic swirls of the Starry Night. I cannot You're... wait to see that. I need to share like how excited you are with this. Ryan introduced me to this topic, this whole event. Ryan is very excited. He's underselling it right now. He's so excited mm -hmm. to see it. I, his work uh, reaches me in a very powerful way. And I have a clip actually I'm going to play for you in just a second that actually summarizes how I feel about Van, Van Gogh's work. Uh, but it's his paintings were an early bonding thing between Laura and I and our relationship. Uh, I have some clothing with his work on it that is incredible. I, I love wearing. Um, and I think one of the things that, that makes his painting so impactful is when you look at them, you kind of fall into them. So being able to literally step in a room where the painting is all around you is going to be mind-blowing. And I'm pretty sure how they're doing it with COVID is, you know, you just walk into little circles on the ground one at a time. Uh, so it won't be as free-flowing as on its own, but uh, I've already got it on the mailing list to get in. But I, I'm i thrilled that this is coming to Alberta, and I will be making the trip to Edmonton, as long as it's safe to do so, to check this out with Laura. Now, I wanted to mention this clip. So uh, a few years ago, Doctor Who, I used to be a huge Doctor Who, not, not so much anymore. Uh, when I was in high school, I loved the show. But there's an episode of the show where the Doctor travels back in time to meet Vincent, 
and they end up showing Vin- taking Vincent forward in time to see that he is the most beloved painter of all time. It's if the it's called Vincent and the Doctor. If you watch it, you will most likely cry. It's unbelievably emotional. And there, this is a line from that episode as Vincent is staring at his paintings in a museum and Bill Nye's character is asked by the doctor, what do you think of Vincent? And the words that are written here are exactly how I feel about Vincent's work and why I think it's so impactful. So check it out. To me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular, great painter of all time. The most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. That's it. Someone who was in so much pain and still saw the beauty in the world and decided to paint about it. That's why I think it's so incredibly powerful when you look at it. So next time you see a Van Gogh painting, think about it from that way. Nice. Amazing stuff. And I can't wait. Hopefully, I'll be able to go to Paris one day and actually see some real Van Gogh paintings. Now, crazy news out of Hollywood. This is a wild story. A gunman shot Lady Gaga's dog walker four times in the chest on Wednesday. Four times. In L.A. And then stole two of the dogs that reportedly belong will do belong to lady frickin gaga check this out this is from et canada yes this is kabc7 so there are reports it was multiple men who approached ryan but at this point police are only confirming one man approached ryan shot him and took two of the dogs french bulldogs before fleeing in a white sedan one of the dogs is actually still with ryan you see yeah there i think one of the police officers just picking up the dog uh, right there in this footage. Oh my gosh. Uh, Gaga's bodyguard did later retrieve the third dog named Asia from an LAPD station later in the evening. And Ryan remains in hospital and is now expected to fully recover. Thank goodness he'll be okay. Some update on this. Gaga is offering 500000 US dollars for reward for information that leads to the return of her two French, French bulldogs named Koji and Gustav. It's a great name for a wow. bulldog, but what a story. Unbelievable. That's I'm glad like that guy's okay. Holy. Something out of I've shot four times in the chest. Total. And he's going to be all right. Wow. Dog napping. Amazing news. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.